Morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to John 21. As Pastor Aaron alerted, alluded to, we will conclude um, our brief analysis of the final words of Jesus. As you know, we started in John 13, uh, seven, eight weeks ago, and we have examined just one phrase of Jesus from each chapter all along the way. And uh, it's interesting to me how the gospel of John ends very similarly to how it is the gospels, each of them, begin. And that, of course, is with an invitation to follow Jesus. And again, as Pastor Aaron has alluded to, apart from Jesus, the primary um, character, if you will, in John 21 is, is Peter. And And so we're going to look together at some of the significance of the interaction between Jesus and Peter here. And I want to dive right in, and I want to read together all of John 21. And I know it seems like a lot, but we won't, there's not, I'm not going to make a point this morning about the whole chapter, um, but we're we're going to read the whole chapter, we're going to make a couple observations, and then I'm going to give you, as we finish, two applications uh, to this reality where Jesus invites Peter and by way of God's word, us, to follow him this morning. And so follow along with me if you would. I'm going to read John 21 it's in its entirety. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. As Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it that, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the, word, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, what a treasure it is to have your word, and even to consider the words of John there in closing of his gospel, where he says, if all of the things that your son did were to be recorded, there would not be enough space in the world to contain the books that would need to be written. And yet, in the majesty, in the magnitude of who Jesus is, and in what Jesus has accomplished, we see this very intimate interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and by way of this interaction, an invitation to them, and an invitation to us to follow him. And so I pray this morning, God, as we begin, that you would challenge our hearts, God, that we might give honest assessment to our lives, God, that we might give honest consideration to your word. And God, we might seek this morning for ourselves to answer the question, are we following Jesus? God, we ask that you'd work in our hearts this morning and that you would be glorified. And uh, we just pray, God, that you continue to work in us and through us. God, that you would continue to change the world that we live in for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to do something a little bit different today than how we might normally do this. And so what I'm getting ready to do is, is really we're just going to kind of observe some things from the entirety of John 21, and it's going to seem like a really, really long introduction. That's okay. We're going to look at this together, and then I'm going to give you two applications that we're going to find in verses 15 through 25. And that's our primary text this morning is 15 through 25. I can see I wrote it on the card wrong when I gave it to Pastor Aaron because uh, we'll look at 15 uh, down there through the end of the chapter. But I just want to start by walking through John 21 and making some observations in terms of what we see unfolding. At this point, we know and we understand last Sunday, having celebrated Easter, that Jesus has risen from the grave, right? And that he has instructed his disciples to go back to Galilee and to wait, right? Because the Holy Spirit is, is going to come. And so we have what we, we looked at last week, what was the second appearance, the first and second appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And this morning we have the third And so a couple observations we want to make. We notice in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, that's being the disciples, I'm going fishing. So what we know, what we understand and recognize is that Peter has failed. 
We looked at this, right? This is what Pastor Aaron read for us this morning in our call to worship. Peter had failed, and then returning to Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, so the disciples would be where Jesus had instructed them to go, and they've gathered there, and Peter says, I'm going to go back to fishing. And it makes sense, if we're honest this morning, because There's a lot of uncertainty at this point for the disciples. Yes, some things have been revealed to them from from and by Jesus, but the reality is the Holy Spirit has not yet come. And so there's almost this picture of they've went to where Jesus told them to go, and they're just kind of there. And then imagine in that setting the magnitude that Peter has of knowing that his last earthly interaction with the the, the pre-crucified Christ was the denial. And so as they sit there and this uncertainty exists among them, Peter says, I'm going to do what I know to do. I'm going fishing. We know Peter was a fisherman by trade. It was Peter and his brother Andrew, who the Bible tells us left their nets and followed Jesus, and there were others, but we know Peter was a fisherman. We also notice there in verse 3 that Peter was still, even in his failure, regarded as an influential man amongst this group of disciples. Because John records for us in the beginning of verse 3 when he says, I'm going fishing, the next thing is the disciples say to Jesus or to Peter, okay, we will go with you. We will go with you. You see, Peter and his influence, and through in, in the midst and through his confusion, sought to go back to work How? Within his own strength. I'm going to go do what I know to do. I'm a fisherman, so I'm going to go back and fish. And the disciples, Peter particularly, will soon be reminded of something that Jesus taught to them prior to his crucifixion that we examined together back in John chapter 15, that apart from Christ you can do nothing. Jesus said, we looked at John 15, our, our final words of Jesus there in John 15 were what? Abide in me and I in you. And so we see this reality again here where Peter's kind of, he's resting in what he knows. He's leading the disciples who are with him according to what he knows to do. And something miraculous happens as the men finish their night of doing what they know how to do in their own strength. John tells us as they return to the shore, an unidentifiable man begins an interaction with them and encourages them to throw their nets onto the right side of the boat. It's interesting because John also tells us that at this time they don't recognize that it's Jesus. But for some reason, they still find it necessary to humor this man. And so they drop their nets in, and again, we know the account, we know what happens. They catch fish, so many that they got to drag it in before they can get the fish out of the water. I want to make sure that we understand that it's, it's commonly understood the, 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 the unrecognizing of Jesus is not unbelief. It was common as we worked through the Gospels to see that there were times where the disciples didn't know or they didn't understand. Maybe they didn't believe. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. There's a reality here that fishermen fish at night. It's early in the morning. It's dark. The, the, the sea, uh, the Bible tells us they're about 100 yards off. 
So just imagine with me going at about 5 a.m. as the sun is not quite coming up yet. And go stand at one end of a football field and look to the other end. You're going to be able to recognize or to identify that there's someone at the other end of the field. But you may not be able to recognize who that is. This is important because we want to make sure that this is not a lack of belief on the disciples' part when they say that, that when the Bible says they don't recognize that this man on the shore is Jesus. But nonetheless, they cast their net. And when they go to pull their net up, they find that their net is full of fish. And in my mind, I have to imagine that in that moment, when they dropped their net to the right side of their boat, and they went to pull it up and found it was full of fish, my mind goes back to the scene that Luke records for us in Luke chapter 5. He says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Just imagine the scene. Knowing what the disciples, and particularly Peter, had been through at this point. The denial of Jesus on Peter's part the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the appearances of Jesus prior to this to the disciples. And in this moment now where they've went back to their old life, all of a sudden it's like a flashback or or deja vu. And in that boat, John says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who is on the shore. And once again, we, another observation we want to make is Peter hasn't changed a lick. Because what do we see in verse 7? The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he hurled himself into the sea. All through the ministry of Jesus and the interaction with Peter, one of the things that we always regard Peter for is being a man who was just instinctive and reactive. Remember, it was Peter who cut off Malchus's ear in the garden when Jesus was arrested. Uh, Peter was brash and bold and said things like, I'll die for you, Jesus. These other disciples, they might go away. They might abandon you, but Jesus, I'll die for you. Peter was always We look back now and we say, in a lot of ways, putting his foot in his mouth. He was impulsive. And we see this exact same reality this morning. At the realization that Jesus was the man on the shore, Peter ditches the boat. And his only concern is getting to the shore where Jesus is located. And then in verses 15 through 17... This is where we see this interaction that we're probably fairly familiar with, where Jesus has this dialogue with Peter following breakfast. And there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of similarities, I I trust we recognize, between the threefold questioning, Peter, do you love me, three times, in the same way that as Pastor Aaron read the call to worship this morning, three times, Peter denies Jesus. 
We also see the reality there's a fire. People are gathered around it. They're warming themselves. There's a very similar scene unfolding on the, the shore of the sea as in the garden and outside the garden where Jesus was arrested and Peter denied Jesus. But it's important that we understand what's actually taking place in this interaction between Jesus and Peter. You see, Peter has denied Jesus and left feeling as though the only thing I can do is fish. I mean, I sold out Jesus. I told him I would die for him. And at the first hint of trouble, three times I denied Jesus. And I, and I proved once again that he was who he said he was, right? And that he did know all things. And so Peter is this reality of having denied Jesus, again, goes back to fishing. And what's taking place on the shore here is a recommissioning of Peter. Jesus is teaching Peter. He's telling Peter, and again, by way of that us, okay, yes, Peter, you failed. You failed, Peter. You denied me. But Peter, it's not too late. It's not over for you, Peter. Do you love me? Then here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed my sheep. And so he's restored to Christ, and he once again is commissioned to serve him. I found it very interesting this week, prior to this sermon and studying for it. Again, you guys know Pastor Aaron and I talk a lot. There's a lot of conversation over the years that has been given to the fact that the three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, he uses two different Greek words. He uses the Greek word phileo, and he uses the Greek word agapao. And the, the idea is, is phileo sounds like the word Philadelphia. We call it what? The city of brotherly love, right? So it's like a camaraderie type love. And then the, the, the Greek word agape, or in this context, agapao, it's a sacrificial love. So when we look at the word love as it's used throughout Scripture, we understand that it's translated differently, okay, in, or it's translated from different Greek words to the word love. And so a lot of scholars have come to this text and said, oh, what was Jesus communicating? Why were two different words recorded by John? And I found it really interesting this week as I began studying this out that there is zero historical evidence to suggest that Jesus meant anything different in the threefold question of asking Peter, do you love me? It's just how John recorded it. And so the questioning of do you love me in two varying Greek words honestly is not a matter of great significance. I believe that the significance is not found in the use of one Greek word or another, but in the circumstances of the interaction between Jesus and Peter. Again, as we've seen, they're gathered around this fire. There's this three-time repetition of the question of questioning of Jesus, of Peter. So these circumstances, they sound very much what? Like the night that Jesus was betrayed and crucified? And three times Jesus asking Peter is obviously consistent with the three-time rejection of Peter. It's interesting to note that he refers to Simon in John 21, Peter, the same way he does in John chapter 1 when he's introduced to Peter. Peter, he refers to him as the son of John, the son of John. And so... 
is we go back to that scene in John 1, in this original reaction between Jesus and Peter, what we see unfolding is very similar to the first interaction. There's an invitation in the exact same way in this final interaction, there's an invitation. To what? Follow me. Jesus says, follow me, Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Then follow me. And so the invitation has been given. But Jesus immediately after giving the invitation makes Peter fully aware of what is at stake. Peter, you said you would die for me and then you denied me. I just re-invited you, recommissioned you to serve me, to follow me, but I want you to know something, Peter. You will die for me. You will die, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Follow me, Peter. It's not too late for you, Peter. But you're going to die for me if you choose to accept the invitation to follow me. Follow me, Peter. And so he's once again invited to follow Jesus. And so we have this great invitation. Follow me. I want to make two observations, excuse me, two applications this morning on the reality of the, the call of Jesus to follow him. And the first reality is this. The first application is following Jesus is an issue of the heart. We see this in this threefold interaction with Jesus and Peter. The word for heart is used approximately a thousand times in Scripture. And it speaks to the inner being of the man in most cases. And so it talks about this reality of our, of our hearts and everything that we are and everything that we do flows from that center of our being. But Scripture paints a picture of that center of our being, our heart, that really is a sad picture. Because from those hearts, from our innermost being, there's a reality Scripture paints for us or teaches us that from that inner being can come both good and evil. The heart of man is sadly divided. One of, this is going to sound morbid, one of my favorite verses of Scripture, I'll explain this, is Jeremiah 17, 9, where Je the prophet Jeremiah speaks of the reality of the heart. He says this, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I hope next time you are tempted to say or you hear someone say, just follow your heart. You'll think of the reality that Scripture tells us that in and of ourselves, our hearts are evil. Desperately wicked. And in and of ourselves, we can't know them. And so we must understand. I would submit to you this morning, this is the foundational issue that plagues humanity. Right? We live in a world where people come from a, their, their, their presupposition or their starting point is one of two things. 
You either believe that man is inherently good or you believe that man is inherently bad. And if you hold a view of, script, a view of the world that's consistent with Scripture, you must believe that man is inherently bad because of the presence of sin. And this is why the prophet Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked. They've been corrupted because of sin. And the reality is we consider our hearts and we consider following Jesus being an issue of our hearts is that the only cure for an evil, wicked heart is a new one. And this is the reality of following Jesus. Without a new heart, one simply cannot and does not follow Jesus. This is an aspect of salvation that I believe is so often overlooked as we work with folks and as we teach scripture to folks and we try to guide them in an understanding of salvation and what it is to trust Christ. When we trust Christ for salvation, it's not just that we don't get punished for our sin anymore. It's not just that we don't go to hell. It's that God makes us new in Christ. We don't get a little bit better. We don't get improved. We were dead, and in Christ, we're made alive. The prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord to the people who have gone wayward. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The word of God clearly teaches us that without our hearts being replaced, we are not capable of walking as Christ has called us to walk when he says, follow me. We can't do it on our own strength. We can't do it in our own abilities because our hearts are, are, are crooked and they're corrupt. It's a matter of the heart. It's following Jesus is a matter of commitment. And the commitment marks the heart change. The commitment marks the heart plant. Because notice what the, again, what the, the prophet Ezekiel says there. The purpose of the heart transplant and the giving of the spirit is so that we can walk as Christ has called us to walk. And I will put my spirit within you. So it says, I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to do what? To walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Jesus clearly calls Peter to a specific task here. Feed my sheep. And what Jesus had for Peter was very, very clear. That he would feed the sheep of Christ. That he would feed the people in the early church when the church would come into existence. And Peter, understand this, was unable to feed the sheep of Christ apart from recognizing that in Christ his heart was new and he was now fitted for the task. You see, if you're going to respond by faith in the call to follow Jesus, you must understand that, that what comes in that and what is necessary for that is that you would have a new heart. And when we think of this reality of following Jesus being a matter of the heart, it's interesting. This is what I think is interesting about the exchange between Jesus and Peter. He's now talking about love. Significance isn't in agape versus phileo. 
it's the significance is in the matter of the heart. The whole interaction here between Jesus and Peter centers around what reality? Whether or not P- Peter really loves Jesus. Peter, do you love me? And because Peter says that he does in fact love Jesus, Jesus does what? Jesus says, be active in light of your profession. You say you love me, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. Three times. And here's the reality. If Peter had never been obedient to the commands of the Lord for him, how would we view Peter? Peter denied Jesus. He has this conversation with Jesus. And in that conversation, Jesus challenges him as to whether or not he loves Jesus and commissions him to a task. What if Peter had never fed the sheep? How would we view Peter? Probably still as a failure, right? Because he didn't do what God called him to do. It was very clear what he wanted Peter to do. And, and if Peter had not done such, we would probably regard him as a failure. Would we feel like Peter was a changed man? Would we view Peter and think that he was different than the man who had denied Jesus? If, I mean, could you imagine... Jesus telling you, asking you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Here's what I want you to do. All right, cool, dude. Nice suggestion. I'm going to go do this. It would be nonsensical for us to observe that in someone's life and think that they were changed, that they had experienced that heart transplant whereby they're now walking with Jesus. So if Peter had not been faithful to the task that Christ had called him to, we would view him as the same man who denied Jesus. So what? He had an interaction on the shore, and so what? He said he loved Jesus, but he was the exact same as the guy who denied Jesus. Our lives matter when it comes to our profession. We obviously don't have ourselves in Scripture, and I'm not calling us this morning for us to read John 15 or John 21, 15 through 20 and say, Justin, do you love me? Justin, do you love me? We don't want to insert ourselves into Scripture, but there is a reality at play here that the expectation is that we would love Jesus and that our love for Jesus would compel us to obedience to Jesus. So again, our lives matter when it comes to our profession. And Jesus calls his followers, not just Peter, but his followers to action. It is our actions, it is our obedience to the call to follow because we've been given a new heart that demonstrates the fact that we love Jesus. I could tell you I love pizza. And if you ask my wife, does your husband love pizza? She would say yes, And if you said, why, how do you know, she would say, because he eats it every chance he gets. That's how, if if my, if you ask my wife, does your husband love Brussels sprouts? She would say, probably not. And you would say, well, how do you know he doesn't love Brussels sprouts? Because he doesn't eat them, even if I make them. We know, we, we, we are able to verify, if we want to call it that, that's a, I think it's an appropriate word, verify the profession or the things that are said with our mouths because the actions of our lives coincide with it. And Jesus calls his followers to action so that we can demonstrate our love for Christ. 
And had Peter lived completely different than what Christ clearly called him to here, none of us would say, man, that Peter, he really loved Jesus. How do we know Peter loved Jesus? You know I love you, Lord. You know I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. How do we know that Jesus, or excuse me, that Peter loved Jesus? Because he was obedient. He was obedient to the point of death. And that sounds, I I, kind of tiptoed around this this week in in the sense that I wanted to be careful how I communicated this. When When I used this phrase as I typed it out, we know Peter loved Jesus because like Jesus, he was obedient to the point of death. And I almost kept going with even death on a cross. But I thought that might be a a little too strong. Because we know that's Paul writing in Philippians chapter 2, talking about Jesus and taking on flesh, right? Becoming a man and being obedient to his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And my desire is not to equate Peter with Jesus. Peter is not Jesus. I simply want to demonstrate the testimony that Peter's life was following his commission by Jesus to feed his sheep. Tradition tells us that exactly what John records for us here took place. That Peter was in fact crucified. The Bible doesn't, it's not recorded for us biblically that Peter was crucified, but Jewish historians, Josephus, and other historical documents demonstrate this reality. It is an absolutely commonly accepted uh, tradition that Peter was crucified in Rome at the hands of the Romans. Jesus said, Peter, they're going to stretch out your hands. They're going to take you where you don't want to go, but follow me. What a testimony. Not that Peter was like Jesus, but that Peter was faithful to Jesus, and he suffered faithfully. One item of note is, in terms of Peter being crucified, tradition also tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, as opposed to right side up, as Jesus was crucified. And this was per Peter's request, because Peter did not believe he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. What a testimony of Peter's life. That after this recommissioning and this reestablishment of relationship with the Son of God and the invitation to follow him, that Peter would follow Jesus faithfully to his death. Now, most of us won't follow Jesus to the point of death. I mean, I don't know what the world holds, but... That's a reality most of us won't face. And sometimes, if I can be honest with you, I think it diminishes the reality of our response to the call to follow Jesus. Imagine with me that as you read Scripture and understood that Jesus was calling you to follow him, imagine if you had the privilege to know that if you choose to follow Jesus, you will die for him. Would you still follow him? This is a reality in the world we live in. Not for us, not now, but all across the globe. There are individuals 
every day who hear this invitation of, of Jesus from Scripture to follow him and choosing to do so is at the risk of their lives. But they do it. Why? Because they've been given a new heart. Because they've been given the Spirit of God. Is The Word of God tells us that they would follow Him. Following Jesus is a matter of the heart. And a heart that is not made new will not follow Jesus in obedience. It's a matter of the heart. Second application is following Jesus is an issue for the individual. This is an issue for the individual. So as this exchange continues on after Peter's been encouraged, once again invited to follow Jesus, this conversation continues, and we see this reality that following Jesus is a matter for the individual. You following Jesus is not about whether or not other people are or are not following Jesus. And I love the exchange. So Peter's invited to follow Jesus. And then John records for us, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So he's talking about himself. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and asked Jesus the question, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter looked back and saw him, he said to Jesus, hey, what about this guy? You just told me, Jesus, that I'm going to be stretched out. That my death is going to be by crucifixion. That's the means, that's the way whereby God will be glorified in my life. What about this guy, Jesus? What about this guy? What's going to happen to him? What is he going to be doing while you're gone, Jesus? And in the words of my five-year-old, Jesus' response was, worry about yourself. I never forget the time we were at the house. My parents were down, and they still had this little Yorkie, and he barked and barked and barked and barked. And my dad was hooting and hollering about something to do with that dog barking. And Jojo was only Jojo can do. She's probably not even, she's probably four at the time, three or four. She looked at him, and she said, Papa, you need to worry about yourself. And we died laughing, right? And if you know Jojo, you understand that. But this is the essence of what Jesus tells Peter. Don't worry about John, Peter. Worry about yourself. What I have for him ultimately is no concern for you, Peter. Maybe he dies. Maybe he doesn't. Peter even then goes on to ask. They make some assumptions that Jesus is saying John won't die. And John says, well, he didn't say that. But Peter, at the invitation to follow Jesus, and this being a matter of the heart, is exhorted, almost rebuked, to understand that it's an individual issue. Following Jesus is not about others, be it your parents or your friends. Your parents might say they're following Jesus. That means nothing for you when it comes to following Jesus. You might have a friend group that's made up of people who say they're following Jesus. Maybe they really are following Jesus. I'm going to let you in on a secret. That has nothing to do with you following Jesus. Because following Jesus is a matter for the individual. Jesus, don't worry about them, Peter. Just worry about what I have told you. Peter, worry about what I have made clear to you. 
And, and, you know, we do this today, not in the sense of necessarily following Jesus. It's amazing to me the world that we live in, and even and especially within the church, the number of people who seek out every single type of hidden this and key to that and key to this and, oh, I'm going to get this deeper, better, super spiritual meaning and understanding, and they do it all while neglecting what God has already made clear. You don't need the key. You need the Word of God. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need games. We, don't need, we need the Word of God. The Word of God is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to mankind. And so we don't need to go buy every book and read every article that helps us understand the better key and the better. And again, don't get me wrong. Even right now, discipleship class, Pastor Aaron is talking all about this reality of studying our Bibles. How do we study our Bibles and why is studying our Bibles important? And so I'm not diminishing things that help us study our Bibles. But if you're using something to help you understand or study your Bible and it's not pointing you to your Bible, quit reading it. You don't want a meaning or an understanding that comes from a book apart from Scripture. And Peter, again, I know that's a little bit different. That's an application within the application, right? But Peter was ready to neglect, in a sense, what Jesus had made clear to him in a quest to understand what Jesus had not revealed. And brothers and sisters, I'm grieved because I believe we do it too. We neglect what God has revealed to us in his word in search of something that we maybe think is better. There's nothing sweeter. There's nothing better. There's nothing more fit for our lives than the word of God. Following Jesus is a heart issue. It's an individual issue. A new heart, as we've seen, is what's necessary. And a new heart is not a community thing. It's an individual thing. There is no group, there is no community amongst us that can collectively be given a new heart. It's an individual reality. And so I would ask you this morning as we finish, are you following Jesus? That's the invitation. Jesus said, follow me. And as you think about the answer to that question, I want to add a caveat. If you're tempted to say, yes, I'm following Jesus, I would ask you this question. Are you following him on his terms or your own? Because if you're following Jesus on your own terms, I got to break it to you, you're not following Jesus. The only means of following Jesus is on his terms. And that's based on what's been revealed in God's word and nothing else. Fox's Book of the Martyrs says this about following Christ. It is not where we go and what happens to us that matters all that much. What does matter is how we respond when Jesus comes to us and says, follow me. What is your response to Jesus this morning? Following him is a matter of the heart. It's a matter for the individual. Are you following Jesus?